Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast, supplying you with the tools and insights to access your business's full potential. Thank you for joining us for part two of our conversation with Nelly Ortiz. We've been having a conversation about how to create the most innovative teams and organizations, how to work with clients and building the best products and services for them, and in the hiring practices in the workplace of the future. So if you missed the first part, I recommend going out and checking it out. We're going to pick up right where we left off, so we hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, and that's actually where I think a lot of design thinkers and facilitators run into a point of frustration is the process uncovers so much more potential, but you're not being contracted for that. Yes. Whereas if... Then you go, bye-bye. Yeah, and, and I think in the future of work, this is just kind of me prognosticating here, but we are already seeing the creation of new job titles oh, and things definitely. that just didn't exist. And, but, and it's only going to accelerate. Mm-hmm. What I don't see out there are people in companies whose expressed job it is, is to keep a vision alive and actually facilitate this kind of ongoing workshop, iterative cycles across silos to continuously break down those natural barriers that... But you will be surprised. Um, I work with a lot of financial services, too, in an insurance company, very big. Uh, they're trying to reinvent the way that they're going to the market, mm-hmm. um, the whole experience. But at the beginning, they were in silos, too. So you had the marketing people here, and then you have some product people on the other side, and then they hire an experienced leader. Another title, right? It's a new title. Yeah. Uh, this person will actually overview every single project that's happening that will impact the experience of the client. And having all the touch points drawing away and actually have that journey and then who is working on what and that alignment is very hard to do at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But if you actually pull it off, that's probably something that a lot of companies are going to replicate. And I'm sure in like five years, we'll see it in textbooks and people like, you know, oh, this is how they did it at the time because it's happening more and more. Now we have CDOs, chief yeah. digital officers. Um, we have also, she's experienced officers. Um, more and more, I was a design thinking lead to at one point where my whole purpose was to actually teach people on design thinking uh-huh. internally and externally. So five years ago, there was none of these titles. No. Like, no. Oh, if there were, they were very, I'm like, especially is this an invented little, yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially in the East Maybe Coast. In Silicon Valley, there, there, there definitely was some, yes. but like East Coast has passed, I would even say three years has really, really evolved. Yeah, and now uh, the creative folks are in boardrooms, like yeah. designers in boardrooms. Like when I was working in IBM, Phil Gilbert, he was a design mastermind and he was the one that actually created the whole IBM design thinking hmm. and the movement internally and how he made everyone actually became a design thinking practitioner. Mm-hmm. And then you can, if you want to evolve in that route to, you know, design thinking. Um, I don't even know that there were so many titles in a way, but then you become a coach then you become a lead. Um, and then you were part of that community internally in IBM, which I I really enjoyed that process because also being part of it, I realized that you could actually make a movement inside a huge company like IBM. Um, they took it seriously mm-hmm. and they knew the impact that will take internally and to their clients. 
That brings me to one of the most pressing issues I think we deal with is. And also, sorry, yeah. Gil Gilbert is not a designer. He's a mm. business person. And that's what's funny because my background is in strategy, business, marketing. Like, uh, I love design and I love being creative. And I can maybe do one or two things in Photoshop, but I'm never, I'm, I would never be categorized as a designer. Right. So sometimes when the clients will see me, it's like, but you're not a designer. Why are you doing design thinking? And I will also put Phil Gilbert as an example. Like you, you're solving problems and you're making sure that you understand and you're empathized with design enough and technology enough to put everything together. But you don't have to be a designer to be a design thinker. And I think that was a very, very, even, you know, when, when you see that as a leader, um, like Phil, let's say, uh, and you see the impact that he created and he wasn't a designer leading the whole design driven revolution for IBM for me was an, an eye opener. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, and that's one of the conversations that happens amongst design thinkers. Um, oh, I'm not going to get the name of the book, right, but it was a bestseller in the New York times recently, actually, uh, statistically going through and sh uh, showing the case for the generalist in the future of work will yes. be the most valuable. Now we we're obviously so uh, specifically prizing the skill sets of specialists, especially yes. in the age of AI, machine learning, and there's always going to be a role for that. It's more rare to find people who have a very broad interdisciplinary base. I agree. Baby boomers were all about one thing. Right. Millennials became a little bit broader. I would actually so my favorite now for skills is the T shape, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and that's how everyone should actually be thinking about their careers. Um, I get bored easily, so mm -hmm. I do a lot in the this part of the T, <laughs> mm -hmm. where I go horizontal across a lot of things because I'm a, a very curious person. So I love to learn about different industries. I learn I learn about um, different frameworks that are out there, um, and then you get deeper down into something that you're very interested in. So then I became an SME on design thinking, but that doesn't mean that I can be other things in the spectrum. Right. So I love branding and I and that's also been part of my my career. I love technology and I've been a BA and I've been a PM. I've been uh, you know so many roles inside these big companies mm -hmm. and you appreciate the work that they do and then when you understand it well you can actually manage a project better. Cause you can be you can empathize of their pain points. Mm -hmm. What are they going through and what do they actually need to do? And also speak the same language, Yes, which is a huge blocker, I think, for now when I talk about those three lenses, business, technology, and design. Sometimes we're talking about the same thing, but we can communicate it because we think we speak different languages. Absolutely. And that experience role that I talked to you about, they should actually have that level set the language between mm -hmm. the three lenses. That's that seems to be the evolution we're going through, and that's the I think the challenge of all of this is, as we start to articulate it, it becomes intrinsically obvious or articulates something that people kind of innately felt, yes. but weren't able to express, or that we are simply existing inside of a paradigm where this is how we do work. Yeah. And so what I find in most of my experiences, it's so critical that the leadership is authentically invested in that conversation. Oh, completely. Because otherwise, you're dealing with a lot of frustration at the middle level of the organization yes. who sees this. And I talk to a lot of millennials. I, I, 
I coach a lot of millennials. These things are intrinsically obvious to them, but they don't have a way to express it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what I find our conversations end up going around is trying to bridge that communication gap or that paradigm gap between an older executive force who knows a particular status quo and a younger workforce that could occur as a real pain in the butt sometimes, but really has all the tools that they really do need. But there's this massive communication barrier to accessing the potential that these millennials have yes. in the workforce. And I also think this, this even even when I was recruited by by Mindtree, Mindtree is an Indian company. Mm-hmm. There's a big hierarchy. Yeah. Uh, very traditional. It's been 20 years in the marketplace. When they hired me, they were like, "Oh, but how many years of experience do you have in terms of tenure?" Everything was measuring tenure. Mm-hmm. Everything was measured in terms of how many times you move from a company to another. Mm-hmm. Very antiquated way of looking for skill sets. Or it really broadcasted their values, which speaks to a different age exactly. of business. Exactly. So only my so my team saw things differently. And also the leadership was actually in the digital part of the business. They realized they needed certain type of skill sets that they don't have. Mm. And someone that is, you know, experienced 30 years of experience would never even know because they haven't been aware of it and they haven't been exposed to it. So actually some of the younger generation are the ones that are like know and have these type of skills. And that's where now all your resume should all be, be skill based and not around tenure and not around a role even. It's just what skills did you learn to actually do your job better and solve a problem better? And that's what I actually tell people when they ask me about, I'm going to change careers. What do I do is focus on the skills you have that they need. Mm-hmm. And that's your leverage because it really is about that. That's what you see 16 year olds being famous on YouTube because they have some skills other people <laughs> don't have and they make millions of money. Like it's just millions and millions. You don't have to wait now until you're 50 to retire. Yeah. Like how yeah. many startups now are like before they're 30 so it's it, the, the world has changed, and we need to adapt to that. Well, and it sounds like the leadership at Mindtree was... It, it takes a high level of self-awareness to yes. see, oh, yeah, here is... This is actually a dimension of skill sets that we actually need to be a digital transformation exactly. organization. And so I think that takes a huge amount of uh, foresight and humility because no doubt you've been challenging some of core beliefs. Oh, definitely. Of that and your clients. <laughs> and so I, I think I was the first Latina hired for Mindtree forever. Oh, wow. <laughs> the first Latin woman. Um, and also a woman. Like in right. technology, you have, it's, you know, you go to a meeting. Uh, typical, you go to a client and you have 20, 50-year-old men. And, and IBM was pretty similar, even though a little bit more diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, my team now is completely diverse. Mm. Um it, you know, we have people from all over the world. I think diversity is so important. And not just diversity in terms of culture and where they come from, but diversity of thought. Um, how do you think when you, when you solve a problem when you always work as a developer and you always work as a designer, very different outcomes. But working together, we can come up with pretty cool stuff. So is that diversity that I'm looking into when I have a team? Uh, when you're just homogeneous in every type of way or form, it, it can get very dull, and you—it's very hard to get something creative coming up from it. Well, 
you're doing as you preach. Yes. So you tell your clients to bring in, when you have a problem, a whole diverse group of people. Yes. Well, you're doing it internally as well, which is, is success. You know, and to, it's, to be able to build that. And it's funny too, because uh, a lot of the times when we do research, mm -hmm. let's say we're going to build a sales platform for a healthcare company, yeah. which we're currently doing too. Um, and the first thing they did was actually giving us the, the high performer sales reps. And I was like, well, it's good that you have good people in Great. your sales mm -hmm. community, yep. but I'm sure you also have some mediocres, some people that are new that they don't know your tools or platforms that they have always doing things. I need to talk to everyone yeah. to actually assess, because if we build something for the most high performer person, Maybe that 1% is going to use it, and then the rest are not. So we need to actually be honest of the variety that you have in your company, too, to make these tools actually make them better. Because otherwise, you just make them fail by showing them something that is impossible for them to even use. I think I may have told this on here before, too. Uh, I was in a, a law firm for a meeting that yeah. was known as the most diverse law firm. It was something that they had etched on a piece of milk glass by their, when you walked into the place and something about this meeting just, I'm like, I don't know why I'm in this meeting. This is definitely, <laughs> but I walked out so confused that before I got to the elevator, I said, tell me about this diversity stuff. This is pretty impressive. Like you guys obviously celebrate this and wear this on your sleeve. Like how did that all come about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was surprised at the answer. It was well, because six years ago in a magazine, we were rated the worst. Uh -huh. So, okay, so by hook or by crook, <laughs> they got shamed into it. I said, okay, well, obviously you discovered something new about that that you guys are really proud of. Like, what did you discover as you started to, to shift the complexion? He's like, and in full sincerity, and, and, and he said, oh, my God, we, we come to conclusions and solutions so much faster. There and I go. said, well, what ding, do you attribute ding, that ding. to? And he's like, well... well Turns out other people have different backgrounds and different <laughs> ideas. And I was like, and it, it was adorable. I mean, it was, That's but, funny. you know, and I, I am kind of poking fun at it, but it does speak to a blind spot that a lot of organizations deal with. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the diversity conversation has been so imbued with, uh, you know, political issues and this oh, and that. Yeah. And people have gotten very sensitive about it, but just the sheer, uh, ability to get outside a static mode of thinking yeah. that becomes available when you have multiple viewpoints in a room. This is the kind of ideation that people pay a lot of money to bring into an organization that literally, if it's part of the hiring practices, can have a huge impact internally on a company's ability to see new opportunities, pivot, and become more nimble. I agree, totally. And even in technology, we see this bias now. Like You have mostly uh, male, Mm -hmm. uh, let's say machine learning is all about teaching a machine how to learn more. Yeah. <laughs> but like you're teaching them on the way. I always call machine learning, and I, when I used to work in, in IBM, Watson for me was a baby. So when companies are like, oh, we're going to have Watson, it's going to fix all our problems. It's no, you need to train Watson. Watson is a yeah. baby. You train them to do the things you want them to do later and exponentially will grow. But there's a time for training. And if only the people that are training are, let's say, Indian or white male in between their 20s to 30s. Uh, is there a diversity there in terms of teaching? Would it be a bias? Probably. Yeah. In yeah. the way that they answer, in the way that they solve that problem, the way that educating that machine to actually go back to you. 
Um, so yes, there is a big bias. And then what are we doing to actually solve that? Um, so it, it happens everywhere. Design for equity is, is obviously a burgeoning topic and it's, it seems to be poorly understood by most, but boy, you know, your example of a sales force, of course, there's a, there, that's a logical idea to bring in your top performers mm -hmm. to interact with them about how to do it. But you've just left out 98% yeah. of your sales force boy, if you could bring up 10% of that 98%, you'd be blowing away the performers of the top 1%. Exactly. And that's the whole enabling the people that you need to enable the most to actually do their work. Mm -hmm. Because the, the top performer might not even need this tool. They're doing well. They're already the top. They're already <laughs> in the top. They're already in top of their game. They're even happy where they are. So where are the people that we actually need to help? Yeah. And the biggest pain point, so I call them the extreme users too. So, you know, every time we do a workflow or a journey, a lot of the times we go to the happy path. It's the easiest way. If everything yeah. goes right, this is going to be the happy mm -hmm. path. But I always kind of challenge them and say, what is the extreme, most possible, horrible thing that could happen? And sometimes those things actually make, make it or break it in your experience. Because Absolutely. that one person had a horrible experience in in their lives and this tool helped them or this service or this experience helped them to go through it mm -hmm. in a way that no one actually you know perceived or, or worked with it before so well it's typical the, what happens yeah is the one you know that one percent or the, the bottom ten percent um you know don't know how to do something or can't aren't capable of achieving something by allowing them to do it. Everybody else had that problem, but they found workarounds. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it improved and raised everybody's performance by mm -hmm. solving the, the extreme users. Yes. Um, I think it's uh, was text messaging um, was developed for people with MS or another neurological oh, interesting. disease hmm. to help them text. And now millennials have the same disease. Now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. but, but, you know, communicate with others versus calling them or something. And, yeah. And, and, um, and, or no, what, sorry, it was the, not text, it was the autocorrect, the auto. Ah, okay. Auto that makes sense. Oh, gotcha. Yes. Especially um, if you're dyslexic, I'm assuming too. Yes. I'm dyslexic. I and especially with numbers. And I discovered this later. I always have a theory that if I was, I was, I lived in the U.S. when I was a little kid, I would have been diagnosed HDHD, <laughs> dyslexia, mm -hmm. like all of these like horrible things. Well, horrible, not really. It's just like yeah. a kid being creative and doing things. But when I discovered I had dyslexia, I was like, oh my God, like I actually have this. And, and, and it makes me feel also like, it's not a horrible dyslexia, but you know, if you give me 1986, I will say 1968, yeah. and it's just a thing. Yeah. But you, you then you're you acknowledge this, and then you realize how to actually work it. But I love the the example of texting. Yeah, so everybody uses it now. Um, no, it's it's interesting dyslexia. That's uh, you think of. I always use that example because um, I'm pretty much a textbook dyslexic. Okay. In terms of the spectrum. Yes. Um, but uh, it requires you to think differently, which is why yep. I've, I've always thought of, enables me to start as an industrial designer, now to do, you know, worked more in uh, using design thinking and strategy in, in business. And, and I think having to already have thought differently mm -hmm. makes me more acceptable to thinking at different points of view and using different methodologies and all that. 
And I think that's, you know, once again, it's a, it's a skill and it's something that people with dyslexia or, or other learning disabilities have to utilize. And I think that's where bringing diversity, bringing in different yeah. people, mm -hmm. allows people to come with different perspectives, different way of thinking, and, and, and it breaks down those silos. And have you seen The Good Doctor? On Hulu, it's a it's a show about this doctor that is uh, has autism, mm. and when would you ever see an autistic doctor? And you know, you always see us as a disease, but they have so many qualities that normal people don't have. Normal people, yeah. uh, and it's really just that concept of that they can see everything. They can see the most little details of like yeah. they hear a heart, and then like there's something wrong. And someone else was like, no, it's normal. And he's like, no, no, there's something wrong. And he will go and do it. And he, of course he has things that society will judge as like, that's not normal. He, will, he won't communicate very well with the clients, you know, the, yeah. the actual patients. Um, but then he will be so much better at other parts of his craft. And I think it's the same thing here. And that's why I think diversity is also so important. And a lot of the creative people actually have some kind of dyslexia yeah. or, you know, it's just because they, they do think more creatively to actually get above that. Well, they and had to. Yes, they, they had to. Right, your coping They're, mechanisms yeah. to actually, to, they literally had to innovate on the fly. Exactly. Well, I think in, in terms of organizations developing themselves as being able to be agile and nimble and being able to pivot in, again, this age of unprecedented change, I think we're always battling these two things, which is, of course, an organization wants to create order and mm -hmm. stability. On the extreme end, you have a company who is so rigid in their business model and their culture that they they lack the imagination to, to pivot or ideate or do anything. Yes. On the other extreme, you could have an organization that is in a constant state of disorganization and chaos trying to incorporate and constantly innovate that people would show up to work in a state of fear and panic every day. That would <laughs> be on the far end of the spectrum. Yes. But now it's even starting to challenge HR's notion of who should we be hiring because a lot of large companies for reliably for many years, we hire from these half dozen schools. Oh, we yeah. hire, and of course there's value to that, but we're having to also recognize the shortcomings of our education system. Oh. And our education system was designed to make good workers. Yes. And more and more now, you see organizations beginning to grapple with we don't have people who know how to think originally Good and think thinkers. outside the box. And um, I'm going to probably get the facts of this wrong, but I believe it's a development uh, division side of IBM that is known for 50% or more of its developers share one thing in common, and that's their jazz musicians. And they have an internal jazz ah, department. That's awesome. So if you really think of the way a jazz performer would have to think, you're thinking about the interactions of multiple trains of thought simultaneously, the interaction, yes. the speaking back and forth, and interactions that go on in music, the ability to listen and do call and response, the, the subtleties and multi-layered nature that includes a lot of ambiguity. Mm -hmm. All of these skills are highly honed if you're a jazz musician. Yes. And at lunch, they play jazz. Yeah, <laughs> which is makes everyone's so, life better. Right. So, but when, then when you go back to work, there's a certain multi-dimensional skill set that is developed that you may, as a, an employer, be far better served to have developers who spent 
10 years on tour with a jazz band who also knows how to code, but maybe not as good as a master coder who's had his head under a blanket coding for the last 10 years. Yes. You actually may be able to gain far better insights, far better uh, uh, product at the end of the day by hiring people who may not have had the most orthodox background. Yeah. No. Well, so just by my background, I went to 11 schools before college. Wow. Um, so my dad was in the Colombian Navy. We travel a lot mm-hmm. and we always moved as a family. And, you know, it was never, it was not always pretty. Like you go to a school, sometimes you don't like the school. You know, I went to an all girls school. I went to public, private, um, different languages, right? It's just, but that also made me adapt very easily to certain circumstances right. and try to learn the ways that people behave because when you're a kid, kids are evil sometimes. You have an accent, it's like, where is that accent from? Like, you're weird. I'm not going to talk to you. <laughs> so then you start actually making other things in your personality that could actually help you later. Yeah. Um, so I, look, in terms of education, there, I have so many, you know, just like the amount of money you need to pay here to get educated. It's just, it, it's, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what I'm, what I'm trying to get to is that I, I would love my kids to go to different schools, different parts of the world and mm-hmm. see things from themselves and touch different people and see different people because it just makes it so much easier. In, in work, that's what I actually do because there's companies that have done the same thing for 20, 30, 100 years, really. These, you know, top 500, you know, Fortune 500. Yep. Um, and they come to you uh, you know, trying to figure it out what, what to do next. But I, I need to open their world first. So what I do, literally, is what I call kind of inspiration. Mm-hmm. So I never tell them what to do, right? I always inspire them in what is out there so they can leverage to figure out what to do. Mm. So inspiration comes from figuring out what is in the market, what others are doing, but not only in your industry, but other industries. Yeah. Cross-pollination for me is huge. Yeah. Yeah. So I work in, you know, one day with CPG, another airline, then I do, um, you know, beauty. And it, it, it really changes all the mm-hmm. time. And that's great because sometimes even, let's say, very simple example, things that you could do in the healthcare industry because it's heavily regulated, you can also do in banking because it's also Mm -hmm. heavily regulated. So a lot of the things actually are kind of like, why are we not doing this A lot of analogous examples that watch how they applied this inside these really tight constructs. Exactly. That now should illuminate how you can start to reimagine this. And someone else they have tried. So like if you see examples as like companies in CPG because they're direct to consumer, even though they're having a lot of challenges in retail, they're trying to innovate. So they do a lot of things already that probably other companies can leverage because they already tested out in the market. So by opening the world to Mm -hmm. them, then there's a lot of aha moments. And then this is where we start brainstorming together and say, oh, wait, so there's people doing this? I didn't know this existed. Like, oh, are they doing this in China? Like, we can do this here too. Like, that, those aha moments, that's what I'm looking for to actually encourage people to have in the room. And then later, of course, we prioritize. But that's, prioritization is big in the whole process. We need to prioritize and refocus what are we actually going to accomplish in mm-hmm. the, the small time that we have, prioritize the pain points that we want to solve, prioritize the ideas that we want to like, gonna go forward with. But at the beginning, I always want them to think big. Yeah, yeah. you got to kind of throw it wide open. And, and by the way, like you said, inform them about this kind of 
pattern of expansion and contraction that goes with the process. Exactly. Converge, so diverge, okay, converge, diverge. So yeah, yeah, just be okay. We're going to be moving in and out of some things. This is part of the process. It all turns out at the end of the day. I love this example I actually had with a telecommunication company. Um, and they came in and they have one problem uh, specifically that in their um, kind of telco towers, um, in between the lines, the snow will get stuck there. Mm. And that will every, they'll put everything down. So no one has yep. signal, and it was a big problem for them, especially in the winter. And one guy, while we were brainstorming, said, why don't we have, like, why do we have a bear that will go and shake the pole, yeah. and then the snow will go down? Everyone laughed, and then, you know, they say, you know, whack, we can't hire bears. Uh, you <laughs> can put you honey in the them? thing, maybe attract them, and, like, yeah. it will be a little dangerous to handle them. But between the love, someone else is like, well, we only need the vibration mm -hmm. to actually make the snow fall. Yeah. So they hire helicopters to go above it. And with the vibration of the air, and you know, the snow will go down. Oh, so they literally just ran a, a, a route over yes. the towers. So the bear shaker yeah. became a helicopter and we solved the problem. So I always encourage them to at least have one absurd idea, something yeah. that you think will never happen. But that might actually trigger another idea that could actually be implemented yeah. and be feasible. Well, and the, well, I was going to say that facilitated workshops a lot of times where that's the hap that happens. Yes. Lot, oftentimes, it's because of, well, one, it's always the most random person in the room. You would never think yeah. to throw out that idea. The quiet person, the quiet in, the, person in the corner. The Sheila in accounting. Yeah, the, the this person was power. actually in the field. Yeah. So it wasn't even an executive. Yeah. It was someone in the field that actually knew the problem right. and came up with this idea. Yeah. So well, yes. then you have all the right people in the room to mm -hmm. go, exactly what you said, inspire the next idea and be like, well, yes, and yes, what if we did this? What if we did that? And then you can work within and make a decision, accelerate that process to come up with a solution significantly faster than you would if not having the diverse people or the type of people in the room. Exactly. I think that's, and that's the paradigm shift, I think, for mm -hmm. organizations overall is, you know, again, we've, people come out of business school, they're very well trained, they're trained to create presentations and, and that, that. <laughs> to build decks and save the world. Oh <laughs> I, I personally, like, have <laughs> attempted to refuse to do decks, not fully successfully, but it's, it's my life's ambition. Yes. And look, we can all see the logic in that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to train to present ideas and get consensus for that. Yes. But Storytelling that is big in right. business. But it does come from a place of trying to convince people that you know, which mm -hmm. is the opposite of engaging groups of people in the discovery. And so in these programs I lead, there's a paradigm shift that has to go from, no, no, the answer's not in your head. The answer is out here. Mm -hmm. When you start talking about it, when you start sharing the idea, you open it up for other people to contribute to it. Exactly. It's out here in the kind of collective mindscape that we all share if we're in conversation. And it is the exact opposite direction of I have an idea and I'm going to now try to convince you of it and then to so that you'll invest in me. Mm-hmm on the hope and prayer that what I know is correct versus discovering it out here. Oh, exactly. And I think that's the difference between a facilitator and a presenter. Yes. I facilitate. And sometimes when people are trying to do this, let's say there's 
a new leader in your team and he wants to facilitate a conversation, but he ends up talking at, you know, <laughs> 60% of the time or more, 90% of the time. And then you have 10% of them talking, your team actually giving ideas. That's not facilitating no. a conversation. That's not facilitating a room. Um, so one thing that it's, and it's, it's hard to learn at the beginning because at the beginning is you're excited about being up there and talking mm -hmm. to people and like presenting your ideas and so you get great. excited. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and there is a charge to it, of course. Yeah, you get excited about you. Oh, I had this idea. I want to No, you need to actually kind of lay back and say, this is their time. The space right? for them to discover. Yes. And I'm going to, I'm going to make it, make this space and the environment and everyone around them be able to support for that, to facilitate that, but not to get their show and steal their show, let's say. So, yeah, really awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time out. I know we went way longer than we expected <laughs> and uh, we might break this up into two pieces. <laughs> Great. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time out. I love every your whole approach and. Um, I'm really excited to see some of these projects turn out. I know. Well, yeah. So keep in touch. I think this was fun and great. So Yeah. Well, <laughs> Nelly Ortiz of Mindtree, thanks for joining us. And, and uh, if people want to reach out and contact you, how can they contact you? Well, they can look me up on LinkedIn. Okay. I'm Nelly Ortiz. So feel free to contact me. Great. Thanks so much. If you'd like to learn more about our workshops or consulting and innovation strategy services, please visit us at evolutionofinnovation.com or email us at hello at evolutionofinnovation.com.